Well, it is my uh, honor and challenge to uh, be our final speaker in, in so many ways. I cannot uh, agree more with my brothers that uh, this particular text uh, really does summarize well what we have talked about uh, both yesterday and also today. And so what I'll do is uh, try to kind of tie some things up in light of what we have discussed and then uh, point out a couple of things from this text that will complement, complement with an E, what we uh, have been talking about for these two days when it comes to membership. The title uh, of the message from Ephesians 4, 1 through 16, The Benefits and Blessings of Being a Part of a Community of Believers Called the Church. Because I think we've established really well that church membership is biblical. Uh, it is something that should be a part of the very fabric of a local church. And so what are the benefits and what are the blessings that God intends for us to enjoy as a result of being a part of this community of faith? And so Paul has given us the doctrine in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. I loved what Jonathan said earlier, how Mark said, yes, holiness is a natural outflow of our justification and our righteous standing with God. So what does then duty look like in Ephesians 4? I, therefore... A prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. By the way, that's the Holy Spirit's verse. One Lord, one faith. One baptism, that's the Lord Jesus' verse. One God and Father of all, there's the Father's verse. So you can see that this idea is thoroughly grounded in Trinitarianism. In fact, I would argue that the very issue of church membership is ultimately not just a Christological issue, but a Trinitarian issue. And that our community is a natural outgrowth of the community that exists perfectly within the triune God of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you see it, I think, right here in Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 7, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying, he ascended. What does it mean but that he uh, had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. I do like uh, pastor teacher better. And why did he give these gifted men to the body of Christ, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning by craftiness in deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is, with, with which it is equipped, 
when each part is working properly, making the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I'm going to do what a black pastor friend of mine uh, said in Louisville a few weeks ago. We're just going to do some Bible walking uh, in our last study this morning, and we're just going to walk through these 16 verses and allow uh, the, the Spirit of God taking His Word to show us what are indeed blessings and benefits of being a part of this community of faith called the church. And I have five of them that I'm going to walk us through very quickly. Number one, we enter a family of like-minded brothers and sisters. We enter a family of like-minded brothers and sisters. That's what we find in verses 1 through 6. Imagine that you are like a number of the church planners last night. In fact, all of you would be starting a church from scratch. Or maybe uh, God has called you to go in and be involved in a church revitalization where the church is really on life support and they have asked you to come in and lead them and being revitalized and re-energized and once more getting on mission for God. All right, where would you go to lay the foundation for this new work or this revitalized work? Or maybe you're in a church right now that's an old established church. They do many good things, but there are other things that, that are not so good and you want to move them Toward health. But let me again remind you if your church is at letter A and your goal is to get your church to letter Z, there is B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, and so on in between. And you can't just jump from A to Z overnight without traumatizing the body and doing serious damage and, and serious harm to it. I, I can still remember several years ago when uh, Adrian Rogers was still living, and he had been at Bellevue, I guess, close to 30 years, and they were asking him about decisions he made early in the uh, time that he was there at the church, and he said, well, in this particular instance, uh, we were able to make this change in a year. This one over here, we waited seven years for it. And, and he was asked, well, why did you wait for seven years, and any of you that, that knew Dr. Rogers, knew of him, you know what a, a dynamic leader he was, virtually by just the sheer force of his personality, he could have probably done whatever he wanted to do, but he said, uh, well, several things. One, I always believe it's wisest to lead by consensus, uh, not by uh, dictatorial fiat. Secondly, I was going to be there for a long time. I didn't have to make all the changes in the first year. And I like what Alistair said last night. Uh, many of us overestimate what we can do in one year, but we underestimate what we can do in five. So you're going in, you want to make these changes. What would you do in terms of laying a foundation? Where would you go for instruction? And I hope though you can learn from uh, leadership manuals and administrative manuals. I do believe all truth is God's truth wherever we find it. I would urge you to maybe go to Matthew 16, where you need to have a confession that lays the foundation for what your church is going to be as it is built upon the deity and the lordship of Jesus Christ. I would urge you to go to Matthew 28, where you have what we call the Great Commission, which I think brings together beautifully the essentials of, of exalting the Lord and equipping the saints and evangelizing the nations. 
I would encourage you to go to Acts. And in particular, look at Acts chapter 2 and verses 40 through 47 when the church was birthed and when the church was started there on the day of Pentecost. And just look at the characteristics of what that infant church looked like in, in, in really significant health that laid a foundation for its expansion throughout the book of Acts. You could perhaps even go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Chuck Swindoll says, There is a church with all the right stuff. And I think that you indeed find in that opening chapter and paragraph characteristics of a very healthy church that indeed had the uh, experience of the blessing of God. But then there is this text here before us, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, which lays out so beautifully kind of the mission of the church, the ministries of the church, and emphasizes, as we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the vital nature of every member doing his part. And so as you look at these first six verses, you discover that what happens is, building upon Ephesians chapter 3 and all the beautiful metaphors that you find in Ephesians about the church. After all, we are the body of Christ. That's in chapter 1, verse 23, and here in 416. Uh, we are a, the building of Christ. That's in chapter 2. We're the bride of Christ. That's in chapter 5. But also in chapter 3, we are the family of God. And so as a family, what happens when we enter into this spiritual uh, body, this spiritual uh, familial situation and context? Well, we are now in a family of like-minded brothers and sisters. And how are we like-minded? Two ways are broken down for us in these six verses. First of all, we are like-minded in how we live and then secondly, we're also like-minded in what we believe or what we confess. Look at it. I, therefore, so he's building upon that beautiful prayer that concluded chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, not Rome's prisoner. I'm the Lord's prisoner. I'm exactly where I am because he wants me here. I urge you, I encourage you to walk, to conduct your life. Now, again, if you're a student of Ephesians, you know that Paul loves that particular image. He uses it here in chapter 4, verse 1, but he'll use it again in chapter 4, verse 17, again in chapter 5, verse 1, chapter 5, verse 8, and chapter 5, verse 15. So Paul is very much concerned that we do live out experientially what we profess in terms of our union and our part of the body of Christ. So walk, conduct your life in a manner that is worthy of this calling to which you have been called. And then what he does in the next two verses is he just lists some common traits of this new spiritual family that you and I are part of. Sounds very similar, by the way, to the fruit of the Spirit that we have delineated for us in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23. He begins, I think rightly so, with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager, enthusiastic to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Humility. Uh, an accurate self-evaluation of yourself. I like what Tim Keller says when he says, humility does not mean that you think less of yourself, but you think of yourself less. That's pretty good. 
Not that I, you know, put myself down and have an inferiority complex. No, not that I think uh, less of myself, but I do think of myself less because, as he says in Philippians, uh, I'm esteeming others better than myself. So we walk in humility, gentleness. Uh, Some guys just love to fight. And uh, if they can't uh, find one, they'll start one. In fact, I uh, just kind of confession time here have watched some fer- folks in the Southern Baptist Convention over the last 30 to 40 years and who participated in what is called the conservative resurgence. And some of them, I think, got into the fight for the right reasons, but some of them got into the fight because they just like to fight. They just like to uh, take it on and they just like to get down. And you know what? That, that, is, that, that may be the way we, we, we think and live outside a, a healthy family, but it's not the way we live inside the family of God. No, and ministers in particular should be characterized by humility, gentleness, patience, some translations long-suffering. Uh, it's been well said that the only way you can be long-suffering is that someone comes into your life that makes you suffer long. And that's why God gives us some of the people He gives us because though we think they are sent by the enemy, they're actually sent by the Savior as aids to our sanctification. And so we are humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love. There's a place in your love life where you can put up with and tolerate people who who do you wrong, who do not have your best interest at heart. And again, I liked how the conversation went uh, in our last uh, uh, time up here as we were doing our panel. Uh, sometimes the, the weaker members in the body uh, are, are people that cause you to suffer. But you know what? It's very hard to really loathe or disdain people that you're praying for. And that you're recognizing again that God is using to conform me more and more to the image of His Son. And so we bear with one another in love and we're eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's very clear we're not maintaining unity at any cost. But again, we're doing our best to maintain. We don't achieve it. We maintain this unity that is made possible as the Spirit of God is doing His work. I think, again, there's that connection with the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. As the fruit of the Spirit is working itself out in this new reality called the family of God. And so there's this kind of a, a family that has kind of a commitment and a devotion to the same kind of ethic, to the same kind of lifestyle. And then there is this commonality of what we believe and what we confess. You'll notice that the word seven occurs there in verses four, five, and six, three times. And as I mentioned earlier, this particular passage is thoroughly Trinitarian. He begins by saying, well, first of all, there is only one body, And there is only one Spirit. Of course, he's talking about the third member of the triune God, the Holy Spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, a hope that I'll be conformed to His image, a hope that I will be with Him for all of eternity. There is one Lord. Now, I could stay here and spend a lot of time, but just the shorthand version, clearly this is an affirmation of the exclusivity of the gospel. 
There is only one Lord and His name is Jesus. There are not many lords. There are not multiple ways to God. The idea of theological universalism is a rank heresy. I would even argue that theological inclusivism runs the risk if not falling into the category of heresy where you would actually argue that somehow, some way, there is saving knowledge in faith other than that which is focused upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, this is a place where, unfortunately, there's not unanimity among evangelicals, though I'm convinced it should be, because Jesus himself said that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. Peter said there's no other name whereby we must be saved. Paul says there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And here Paul says there is only one Lord. In fact, not only is there only one Lord, There's only one faith. There's only one baptism. Now, we could debate. I think water baptism is in view here, but certainly spirit baptism is close at hand. In fact, seldom in the Bible do you see the two separated. And then he says, and there is one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in us all. Now, Over the years, as I've read through this particular passage, I had always sensed, but I just didn't see it very clearly, but I had always sensed that somehow in there, there was a missionary current running. There was a a great commission uh, emphasis in there. It wasn't, you know, overt like Matthew 28 or Acts 1, but, but it was there. But I could never really put my finger on it. And then in making preparation for this particular message, I came across something that John Piper said from this particular text from a message entitled, One Lord, One Spirit, One Body. And this is what caught my eye, for all time and all peoples. And I think he, as he is so wont to do, fleshes out, very clearly and faithfully that there is indeed a missionary impulse that permeates, especially verses 4, 5, and 6. And so here's what he says. It's kind of lengthy, but it's worth hearing. What does this text have to do with missions? What does it have to do with the task of the church to evangelize the unreached peoples of the world? The answer is that since there is only one God, the Father of all who believe, Ephesians 2.12, and only one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, Ephesians 1.2, and only one Spirit, the Holy Spirit, poured out from the Father by the Son, Acts 2.33, and only one faith... Faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, Ephesians 1, 13 and 15. And only one baptism into Christ in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Matthew 28, 19 and following. And only one body, the church of God, gathered with Jesus as the head, Ephesians 4, 15. Since there is only one God and one faith, we must take the news of this God and this faith to the nations. There's no other name under heaven, Peter said, given among men by which we must be saved, Acts 4.12. Other religions and other lords will not save. 
you might think that this text is about church unity, not about missions. But think again. The issue at Ephesus was the issue of whether Gentiles could be full fellowship heirs with the Jews in the body of Christ. The answer was that Christ reconciled both in one body to God through the cross. Both have access in one spirit to the Father. Those who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ and made into one new man. So, the issue of unity for Paul is created by the mission of the church to those who were far off, the Gentiles, the nations. Far off spiritually and far off culturally and sometimes geographically. In other words, the uniqueness of Christ, the fact that there is only one Christ and only one God and only one faith is the foundation for mission outside the church and the foundation of unity inside the church. I really like that, and I think he's, he's, he's exactly correct. If there were many true gods and many saviors and many valid faiths and many baptismal entrances into many genuine bodies of redeemed people, there would be little need for missions the way Paul sees the need. But there is only one God and one Lord, and one faith, and one baptism. And this salvation truth must be proclaimed then to all creation, to all the peoples. And so I would say this about our our first point. Practically speaking, we enter a family of like-minded brothers and sisters. So what does that mean? I think it means a couple of things. Number one, I absolutely would have a church covenant. If I'm starting a church as a church planter or I'm revitalizing a church or if I'm trying to get a traditional church moving in a more faithful biblical direction, I'm going to have a church covenant that talks about our common responsibilities and commitments to one another. Secondly, I'm going to have a church confession. I'm going to have a church confession. Now, it doesn't have to be as extensive, for example, as uh, the Westminster Confession or some of our other uh, confessions of faith from the past, but it needs to be a sufficient confession. It needs to be an adequate confession. Again, most of us in this room are Southern Baptists. I find the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 a very adequate confession of faith. But I'm not saying it has to be that one, but it needs to be something like that so that, again, your people know who we're supposed to be and they also understand what we believe and where we stand. I would also say that growing out of that, you have to have a church that has within it the DNA of the Great Commission. I've had a number of you ask me in the last couple of days about what if you're in a church that's not doing these things? What if you're in a church that's not healthy and, you know, you're trying to understand and trying to decide, as we were talking about a moment ago, do I stay, do I leave, do I work for change? That there's not a one-size-fits-all answer. There just isn't. But I would say this, I'm not going to be a part of a church for very long that is not confessionally faithful not going to be a part of a church for very long that does not take very seriously our covenant responsibilities with one another 
And I'm absolutely not going to be a part very long of a church that does not see its responsibility to get the gospel to every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Because I do indeed agree with what Oswald Sanders said, Oswald Smith, excuse me, any church that is not seriously involved in helping fulfill the Great Commission has forfeited its biblical right to exist. And I indeed believe that, and therefore, if I can't see my church in a reasonable period of time getting there, then I'm probably going to be uh, best served. And to be honest with you, the leadership of that church is probably going to be best served if I happen to be and I happen to go somewhere else. So I think, first of all, one of the benefits and blessings is we enter a family of like-minded brothers and sisters. Number two, we learn the scriptures under the teaching of gifted men of God. We learn the scriptures under the gifted, uh, the teaching of gifted men of God. Look at what he says there in verse 7 and through verse 11. But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, and I love the way it was put last night, he is now the ascended, exalted, risen, glorified Christ. And so the exalted king, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. Sin, death, hell, the grave. He hooked them to his belt and he carried them as the victor. He led a host captive and he also chose in sovereign grace to give gifts to men. Paul then gets parenthetical. Insane. He ascended. What does it mean but that he has also descended into the lower regions of the earth? Now, I'm not going to chase this uh, interpretive um, uh, bumblebee very far. Just to say, I think it means the grave. I'm very much aware of the 1 Peter 3 issue and preaching to the spirits in prison. And uh, that's for another conference for another day. I just think it means the one that was way up there came all the way down here, even to the point of death and the grave. But the one who descended as far down as you can go is now the one who also ascended far above all the heavens. So he's in the third heaven, the very paradise of God. And he went there that he might complete or fill all things. So in the process of completing... And filling out all things, what did he do? Well, he gave gifts to the body of Christ. He gave gifts to the church. First of all, he gave apostles. Secondly, prophets. Third, evangelists. And fourthly, he gave the pastor teacher. He gave apostles. They are foundational. Uh, They are, uh, we can say it this way, there are apostles with a capital A. They're all gone. And they're apostles with a small a, which has more in mind what we would call today our missionaries, sent ones who go out to expand the body of Christ and expand the work of the Lord among the nations. He gave prophets. Uh, by the way, at best I can tell in the Bible, prophets are not gender specific. There are prophets male and there are prophetesses female. Uh, they were most of the time not fortune tellers. They were more forth tellers and proclaimers of biblical truth. And then there are what he calls the evangelists, probably one of the most misunderstood gifts, I think, uh, in the Bible. Because often we think of evangelists, we think of 
Billy Graham. We think of Luis Palau. Uh, we think of these guys that come in not so much anymore and do protracted meetings. And I'm not saying that that is not uh, the gift of the evangelist. I think some of those who do that do have the gift of the evangelist. But he's talking here about those who do a particular kind of ministry within the local church. And so I think what he is helping us understand is that a healthy church is going to recognize and seek out and, and indeed equip and, and release those who are evangelists, who have the gift of the evangelist. Now, again, this be reminded, all of us are to do the work of an evangelist. All of us are to do the work of an evangelist. Don't come to me and say, well, I don't share the gospel. Uh, I don't see people coming to Christ because I don't have the gift of the evangelist. I don't have the gift of the evangelist. I wish I did. Of all the gifts in the Bible, I covet that one the most, to be honest with you. But whether I have the gift of the evangelist or not is irrelevant to the fact that I am called to do the work of an evangelist. But there's some that are uniquely gifted by God to train others, to model it for others, and to actually do the work. They just have that ability. It's just their very nature to be able to easily and enthusiastically share the gospel. But the one I want to spend just a tad time on is the last where he says, and shepherd teachers are pastor teachers. In other words, we get to learn the scriptures under the teaching of gifted, God-called men. Now, let me just say this to you. There can be a sense in which the calling of God can be misunderstood. But there can be another sense in which the calling of God to the office of the pastor, to the office of an elder, to the office of an overseer can be too easily dismissed. In fact, I'm kind of dumbfounded when I hear people say, well, you know, I never sense that they're serving in the role of a pastor or a senior pastor or a visionary pastor, what all of these other names we come up with. But, they, but I never really sense the calling to be a pastor. I don't really, that makes me very nervous. That greatly concerns me. Because I will tell you this, practically speaking, pragmatically speaking, if you don't have the call to be a pastor... When things get really, really tough, you'll, you'll break and run away. You'll, you'll, you'll quit. People sometimes ask me, so you were called to be a pastor? Yes. Uh, in uh, July of 1977, on a mission trip to the Papago Indian Reservation in Sells, Arizona, in an old-fashioned Monday night revival service, I heard God's call to the ministry as clearly, if not more clearly, than I did when I was converted as a 10-year-old little boy. I share with folks, makes no sense theologically, but there was a brief time in my life when I doubted my salvation. I have never, ever doubted my call to the ministry and my call to serve in this role in the body of Christ. So people sometimes ask me, well, what would you do if you were not involved in vocational ministry? And my answer is always, I don't know. I have no idea. The fact of the matter is, I don't want to do anything else. I'm not trained to do anything else. And so I don't have any idea what I would do if I were not doing this. I didn't see it coming. It was not on my radar screen. 
My aspirations were to go to college and play baseball and then get a degree in physical education and coach football and basketball and baseball or one of the three or two of the three on the high school level, maybe the college level. And again, you don't have to hang around me very long to know that I still enjoy sports very much. But the fact of the matter is, after that particular event in my life out there in the desert of Arizona, I have never, ever wanted to pursue that And all I want to do is pursue the other. And so you need to have that sense of calling in your life that you just are unalterably convinced this is what God wants me to do. I, I cannot do anything else. Now let me say this also as a point of practical application. I'll move on. In our context and in our culture, Your people do not have to listen to bad preaching. They do not have to listen to bad preaching. There was a time when all they got and all they had access to was you. That day is gone, and it ain't coming back. And so if you are a poor preacher either because you don't prepare, you haven't been well-trained, you don't take it seriously as you ought, you don't spend the time that you need to. They don't have to put up with that stuff because they can go online and they can listen forever and ever and ever and ever to like really, really, really good, outstanding biblical exposition and it doesn't cost them a dime. And they will. Now, you say, well, that's just not fair, though, Danny, because I don't have these kind of extraordinary gifts that some of the brothers that have already preached here have. It's not who I am. It's not how I'm gifted. It's not how I'm wired. I don't have it either. I don't have it either. But I I do know this. In the day and age in which we live, right or wrong, it's true. Let me say the good thing first and then come behind. What, What you say is more important than how you say it. But how you say it has never been more important. What you say, being faithful to the Scriptures, brutalizing the King's English, if, uh, if that's how you are wired. By the way, I learned a moment ago, I meant to share this with Mark, uh, bona fide as opposed to bona fide. I was speaking Latin. Didn't know I was speaking Latin, but I was speaking Latin. And so maybe you aren't really gifted in terms of a voice like Lig Duncan. You're not as good with words as an Alistair Begg. Here's the deal. You can still take what God has given you and refine it by training and by study to the highest possible level for His glory, and He'll use you. He promises to bless His Word, and yes, He can hit a straight lick with a crooked stick, but why don't you straighten yourself out a little bit by working hard, both in terms of what you say and working hard in terms of how you say it, because your people do not have to suffer under bad preaching. They just don't have to, and the fact of the matter is, they ought not to have to. There's not a man in here that's been called to the teaching assignment that cannot take what God has gifted you with, and He has gifted you, and refine it and work on it and give time and attention to it so that you indeed become a faithful 
confident expositor of his word that he indeed will bless. So one of the blessings of the church is that we learn the scriptures under the teaching of gifted men of God. But now number three, we are equipped for the work of ministry Christ has planned for us. That's one of the blessings of being a part of a body of believers. We are equipped for the work of ministry that Christ has planned for us. Look at what he says there in verse 12. Why did he give the church these apostles and these prophets and these evangelists and these pastor teachers? Well, he did so to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Every member, a minister, is a worthy goal for every local church. Every member, a minister, is a worthy goal for a local church. I said it in the panel discussion a moment ago. I really believe that God calls us to work ourselves out of a job. God calls us to pour our lives into others so faithfully and so intentionally that they are equipped to do their work. And in one sense, you become irrelevant to a number of areas because you've now got people that were supernaturally gifted by God to do those things even better than you could ever do them because of the abilities that God has given them. I like what Greg Nettle says uh, in a book, Disciples Who Make Disciples. You see, there is a world of difference between a teacher, a good thing, and a discipler, a better thing. A teacher shares information while a discipler shares his life. A teacher aims for the head while a discipler aims for the heart. A teacher measures knowledge while a discipler measures faith. A teacher is in authority while a discipler is a servant. A teacher says, listen to me, while a discipler says, follow me. Now, he may overstate it just a little bit because I think actually you can only be a good discipler if you are a good teacher. But if you're just a good teacher and by, well, actually, let me say it this way. If you're just a teacher who does nothing but convey knowledge, you're just a, you know, an information conduit that's spitting out. You're not really a good teacher. You're not really a good teacher. And I really do believe good teachers are going to be good faithful disciples, equipping others, the saints, for their work of the ministry, which then results in the building up of the body of Christ. Now, I want to clarify something I said during the panel uh, discussion to make sure I'm not misunderstood. Uh, I do believe that God gifts every member of the body of Christ irrespective of gender. I absolutely believe that. And I do believe that some churches on the very conservative end that take very seriously what I think the Bible clearly teaches about issues like the, uh, the headship responsibilities of men, both in the home and in the church, I do think some of them run the risk sometimes of kicking the females to the curb and denying them the opportunities to do what God clearly has gifted them to do. I do believe that. At the same time, it's very clear to me that with almost no exception at all, the great need of the day is not so much for more godly women, but the need for more godly men. Clearly, that is the great need of the day. 
And so it's desperately necessary for us when it comes to having this healthy body and equipping everyone for the ministry that Christ has planned for them that not only do we have these Titus 2 women, but we have Titus 2 men too. And that we are indeed in, in some measure, and again, how you do it is going to vary. It's going to vary according to your personality and makeup. It's going to vary according to your particular local church context. Again, there's this, not this one way fits all. But that you do it is what must take place. But there is a means whereby you are indeed pouring your life, men, into other men, who then in turn are going to be able to pour their lives into other men. And we've got that pattern again from 2 Timothy chapter 2, which Alistair preached at, uh, preached from here on Thursday, where you're passing it on to those who pass it on, to those who pass it on. If you go look at that text, Paul includes four generations there. Four generations. Sons, dads, granddads, great-granddads. Daughters, mothers, grandmothers, great-grandmothers. And so I want to challenge you on the one hand to release all the body of Christ to do the work of ministry to which Christ has planned for them, but in particular, work hard. Work hard to raise up a generation of godly, godly, godly men. And again, this is just a quick parenthetical side note. Make sure that you're raising up biblically authentic men. Men that are indeed strong in their commitments and their convictions, but men who lead, not drive, and men who shepherd and do not act like donkey back in dictators and the macho man, which is so distasteful to God and gives such a jaundiced view to the world of what it really means to be a strong, godly, masculine male. You can be a strong man and at the same time as Jesus was, be so approachable and so gentle, little children will crawl up in your lap and feel perfectly at home and safe there. Now, I know that we've had something of a backlash within the evangelical community, at least in a section, uh, to the over-feminization of the culture, and I recognize that. But, boy, the pendulum swung way too far in some areas, and now we're seeing the negative fruit and the fallout from it. So you make sure that when it comes to raising up a generation and equipping for the work of ministry men, you provide for them biblical models and the biblical pattern, and you rigorously, rigorously wedge yourself to it. Number four, we enter a family of like-minded brothers and sisters, we learn the Scriptures under the teaching of gifted men of God. We are equipped for the work of ministry Christ has planned for us. And fourthly, we are protected from false doctrine that so easily seduces. Look at what he says there again in verse 12 into verse 13 and 14. These pastor teachers, these evangelists, these prophets, these traveling missionaries, they equip the saints for the work of the ministry for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the statute, and even to the fullness of Christ. Now, what is the intent 
that we have this unity of faith, this knowledge of the Son of God, that we are moving to this mature manhood and that we are meeting this standard or this stature of the fullness of Christ. It is so that we are no longer like children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and by the craftiness in deceitful scheming. One of the blessings of being a part of a spiritual family, this this spiritual family called the church, is we're protected from false doctrine that so easily seduces. And again, I will tell you, I have just tremendous uh, frustration in this area because I'm just so amazed, even in churches where there is faithful Bible teaching week after week after week and month after month and year after year, we still have members of the body that are easily susceptible and seduced by false teaching. I'm just, I'm dumbfounded. I mean, I'm amazed. I'm not going to begin to name names this morning, now this afternoon. You know who I'm talking about. And you'd be amazed sometimes if you were to do a quick survey of some of the people that your people are reading, listening to, both by podcast, radio, and television, and how in spite of your faithful, doctrinally-oriented, expository preaching ministry, are easily seduced. Now, you can imagine how vulnerable they are if they're outside this protection of a local church, uh, this body of believers. You can imagine how susceptible they are if they're not genetically and hardwired connected in this kind of a way. And so one of the real blessings is that we do provide this, this covering, if you like, of faithful doctrinal Protection, which again comes back to why I would absolutely have a confession of faith. I would make sure my people are continually confronted with that confession of faith. I really like some of the some of the churches today that are doing things that never happened in my lifetime. I'll visit some churches, especially some of the younger churches and some even in this particular area. And almost without exception uh, in their gathering, not only are they going to read extensively the scriptures... They're going to recite, we're going to read and recite great confessions of the faith. It may be the Apostles' Creed. It may be the Nicene Creed. It may be the Chalcedonian Creed. It may be some facet of another creed uh, that's either Baptist or non-Baptistic, but when it's not, it's still faithful to the Scriptures. And in the process, they're teaching their people the value, the importance, and they're also providing protection for them in terms of theological and doctrinal integrity. I never in my entire life, until I was past my 50th birthday, ever was in a church that read the Apostles' Creed. Never. Never read the Nicene Creed. My God, I didn't even know what the Nicene Creed was. I did. They didn't. But we didn't read it. Chalcedonian Creed, Baptist Faith and Message, you name it, Westminster Confession. Again, I was just dumbfounded that we have so many churches that not only don't read it, they were even completely and totally unaware of it. And I'm just telling you, in the day and age in which we live, the seducing spirits are running rampant. And yes, the Apostle John tells us that the Antichrist is coming, but already 
there are many antichrists out there in the world deceiving us concerning who Jesus is and what Jesus did. And one of the real blessings of being a part of a faithful family, a community of faith, is you are protected from doctrines that so easily seduce. Finally, we have the privilege of blessing and serving others in what we say and do. We have the privilege of blessing and serving others both in what we say and also in what we do. Verse 15, he says, Rather, don't be caught up by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Rather, in contrast, speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love. You see, some of us are really good at speaking the truth, but we don't do it very lovingly. Others are all caught up with love, but because they've jettisoned the truth, it just devolves into nothing more than mushy sentimentalism. No, we need both truth and love. And as we do, we grow up in every way into Him who is our head, into Christ. And it is from this one that the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which is it equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Do you see Paul's logic here? Do you see Paul's logic? If we were to just go back a few verses and just walk through the passage very carefully and very quickly, here's what, we, what we've seen. I'm, I'm moving to, to finish. First, God's gifted men equip the saints for the work of their ministry. That's verse 11 and verse 12. Two, saints doing the work of the ministry builds up the body. That's verse 12. Three, building the body results in unity in the faith and a fuller knowledge of the Son. That's verse 13. Four, this process produces a mature body that looks and acts like Christ. That's 4.13. Five, this mature body is prepared to recognize and handle doctrinal heresy and false teaching. That's verse 14. Six, this mature body will be mutually accountable, speaking truth to one another in love. That's verse 15. Seven, this mature body grows in every way into Christ. It grows inward. It grows outward. Eight, this mature body has each part working properly. Go back to 1 Corinthians 12 and you can see all the parts of the body, both visible and not so visible, both public and private. We need all of them doing their part. Nine, this mature body keeps on growing. And ten, this mature body builds itself up in love. And so the fact of the matter is we, as a visible manifestation of the kingdom of God on earth, I love the way Jonathan said it, hoisting up the flag as an outpost, as an embassy of that greater kingdom that is to come, that is already here and has invaded planet earth, we get to be Christ's representative on this earth because here's how we can summarize it. On planet Earth today, King Jesus has a body. 
That body is called the church. It has eyes that see the needs of the world. It has ears that hear the cries of the nation. It has a mouth that can proclaim the gospel. It has legs that can walk, arms that can serve, feet that can be blistered, and backs that can be whipped, all for the sake of Christ and the gospel. This body makes Christ real to the world. So, our goal is not so much to build buildings, grow budgets, merely acquire knowledge, or be captivated by political or social agendas. Our goal is to build men of God and women of God. Our aim, fill this world with Christ and His gospel. Therefore, our strategy should reflect this, and our local churches should reflect this. This is what should set the agenda for the church. Any other agenda is going to fall short. Indeed, any other agenda, quite simply, is not worth having. Heavenly Father, I do thank you so much for this passage, and I thank you for the truth that we find embedded in it concerning the gift that the local church is and the blessings and benefits that come from being a part of this local body, this family of God. And Lord, I thank you so much for the two days we have spent together. We, we have thought uh, hard uh, about uh, the issue of church membership, blessings, benefits, challenges, obstacles to, misunderstandings of. And now, Lord, it is my prayer that uh, indeed we will take what we have learned, but it will not be merely uh, knowledge tucked away somewhere in our brain. But it will be things that we will now begin to, with wisdom, patience, and love, seek to implement in our own individual congregations that we, again, might indeed uh, revel in a good way in the blessings and benefits of being a part of this glorious creation called the church, the body of Christ, the family of God. Lord, we were made for community we all need a father, and we all need a family. And you provided both by means of the shed blood of your son in this glorious creation called the church. May we forever be grateful for it, recognizing that though she is imperfect now, she has a destiny that is so glorious it will take all of eternity to explain and to enjoy. And for that we praise your name and thank you. In Jesus' name.